friend. It is good to have you back. It is good to have you back. Golly bum, that's the easiest applause I've ever gotten in a sermon before. Hey, I want to let you know next Sunday, Pastor Javon is going to kick off a new series called Tug of War. It's going to be a series on relationships. So if you've ever had any kind of struggle in a relationship, you want to be here next week. Javon's going to tell you how to have perfect relationships. (laughs) Never have a squabble with your spouse, with your children, with the neighbor next door. Javon is going to settle all of your relationship needs. You don't want to miss it next week. Tug of war, make sure that you're back next Sunday. I also want to begin by saying a word of appreciation to the many of you who have sent cards, um, emails, personal words of sympathy in the news about my dad's death about 10 days ago. It has meant so much to me, and I have felt, you know, as a pastor, you're often on the giving side of care, and it uh, has made me feel greatly loved by our church and to be on the receiving end. So I just really appreciate that support. I drove right after this service last Sunday to go down to Winston-Salem, see my mom, be with my siblings, and driving in the driveway when I got there last Sunday night, I had the strangest emotion come over me. I mean, I had eight and a half hours to get ready, but I did not, I could not anticipate this feeling that hit me as I drove in the driveway. All of a sudden, I was aware that just three weeks before that, I drove my dad out of that driveway to go to the emergency room, and that was his last time at home. And I wasn't quite ready for that. Right after Christmas, I went down there to see my parents. My dad fell when I was there. Uh, he broke four ribs. I was able to get him into passenger seat of my car drove him to the hospital Uh, but within the next few days what really became the concern was not the ribs it was his mental condition my sister's a nurse and she recognized what was going on with my dad she said at the hospital they call it hospital psychosis it's a state of just deep disorientation and confusion and you add into that medication and stages of dementia that were happening with my dad. And the confusion uh, leads to great anxiety, and he just stopped eating or drinking. It didn't help also that he was moved four different times in those three weeks. The, the last move <clears throat> was to a hospice center. He had been there, uh, he, he got there in the evening, And the next morning, so just, you know, 12 hours after arriving there, my sister took my mother to see him, and she sat by the bed and held his hand and talked to him. He wasn't responsive, but within a few hours, he passed away. And I like to think that there was a comfort in that little bit of time, even without his showing his awareness, that gave him a peace to let go and to be at home with God. Now... I know that's a heavy way to begin a sermon, and it probably takes a lot of you to similar places and people you've been with before and raises memories that that are not easy, and I don't share it for that. I share it because on the drive home, I could not help but think about how that experience connects to the scripture story today and 
what this whole series on faith and doubt has been leading up to. You see, Jesus talks to the disciples about grief and about home and the aim of believing. He prepares the disciples for his death and departure. That is what John 14 is all about. He is, he is talking with the disciples about his going away, but he puts it in context of home. He says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. And Jesus describes his relationship with the heavenly father as being like a home, being at home. And for anybody who has a positive home environment, then you know that when you say the word home, you're not just talking about place, you're talking about a feeling, a feeling of security, a feeling of comfort, familiarity, a feeling of connection with the people who are the most important to you in the world. Jesus says his relationship with God is not only like that, he invites his disciples into that place. He says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus tells the disciples they will never be forgotten. He will come looking for them. Now this next part of the story I referenced last week, talking about Thomas, the disciple who liked certainty. Jesus said to them, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas thought Jesus was talking about an address. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it's that second sentence that has caused a lot of trouble in Christian history. It's that second sentence that is most controversial because it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you don't know me, if you don't call yourself a Christian, you don't get into heaven. New Testament professor Gail O'Day uh, says in her commentary on John that many Christian traditions have turned these words into a weapon with which to bludgeon one's opponents into theological submission. They are taken by some as the rallying cry of Christian triumphalism, proof positive that Christians have the corner on God and that people of any and all other faiths are condemned. Now, you don't even have to bring other religions into this. Christians do this to each other. Years ago, there was a stand-up comedian named Emo Phillips who used to do this routine where he talks about seeing a guy who was about to jump off a bridge and he yells out, don't do it. And the guy turns around and looks at him and says, why not? Nobody loves me. He says, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the man says, yes. Emo Phillips says, me too. Um, are you a Christian? He says, yes, I am. He says, me too. He said, are you Protestant or Catholic? He says, I'm Protestant. Me too. What denomination are you? Um, I'm a Baptist. Me too. Now, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? <laughs> he said, well, I'm, I'm Northern Baptist. Me too. Are you Northern 
conservative Baptist or northern liberal Baptist? He goes, I'm part of the northern conservative Baptist. Me too. This goes on and on until he finally says, now are you a part of the northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council 1879 or Council 1912? And he said, well, Council 1912. 1912, you heretic, you ought to go ahead and jump. Now, anybody who's been in church any length of time sees the humor in that because we know the truth in that. You put enough Christians together talking about religion, and it's just a matter of time before somebody says, go jump. Why? Why why, why do we do that? Is it because we think that being religious means you have to be right? Being Christian means others have to be wrong? I don't know, but I do understand it because I've done it. I've done that to people. Over two decades ago, I did this week-long mountaineering school on a glacier in Washington State in the Cascade Mountains. There were just three of us in our group, a couple from New York City, myself, and then we had a guide, four total. So you camp on a glacier for a week learning mountaineering skills, and then I tacked on two extra days with just the guide to do rock climbing skills. So when it was just the uh, guide and myself, when we were taking lunch breaks, sitting around a campfire at night, we would get into faith conversations. He told me that he was baptized as a Christian when he was a boy, but uh, growing up in the church, the church didn't work for him. So he quit going to church as a teenager. Um, In his young adult years, he started exploring other religions. And he looked at the pros and cons of different ones, picking out the things that work the best. And he said, right now, Buddhism is what works best for me. Now, I tried to make my response as gentle as I could, but the truth of the matter is there was no gentleness in what I said. I said, you know, that sounds like you're looking for a religion of convenience. You're just looking for what you already agree with, with what suits you. Surely you would want a religion that challenges you, that pulls you toward God instead of pulling God toward you. I don't know why he didn't respond to my emails after that trip. (laughs) He He didn't get back in touch with me. Yes, I do know why. It's because he felt judged by me. He felt judged. Why did I do that? Why could I not just applaud his spiritual interest? Ask and inquire what he was learning, what he was getting out of it. Begin a relationship with him. Was it it my own Christian triumphalism? Was it my belief that if I could just return him to his Christian faith? Well, good for me. Truth is, yeah, that's probably what I did believe because there was enough evangelical Christianity in my background that I believe that's the goal. That's the goal, to get other people to say and think and believe the right way and my way. And if I could just do that, well, I scored again. What I've come to learn is you can rack up quite a score in that world and never grow in any love toward people. Never really get to know them. 
never really get to learn their lives and what their hopes and dreams are, what motivates them, what are they passionate about, to, to, to let your life get connected to another person. Did Christianity mean for me that I had to be right and others were wrong? What if I had been born in Korea and raised Buddhist, which would have been the likelihood? Does that mean I wouldn't be able to go to heaven? What if I had been born in Saudi Arabia, where it is illegal to become Christian? Would Jesus say to me, I'm sorry, Rob. That's not the Jesus I really believe in. So what did Jesus mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me? There are two important things to understand about that sentence that both have to do with context. One is to remember who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to a large random crowd of people. He's not talking to a multi-religious gathering. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people with whom he has a relationship of trust who have committed their lives to learning his way of life. That's very important. The other thing to understand is that this is not a standalone sentence. It's part of a larger quote of Jesus. So if we're going to understand what Jesus says in this one sentence, we have to understand what is he talking about in the full quote. He's responding to a very honest, simple question. How can we know the way? How can we know the way to God? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not talking about religion. Jesus is not even talking about those who acknowledge him. He has already refuted that idea in a previous place in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus isn't talking about the words we use. He's talking about the way we live I am the way. What is the way? It's not a religion. It's a human being. It is the way of life we see in Jesus. It's living by his values. It's letting his way live in us. You know, there are a lot of people who have nothing to do with Christianity who live a lot more like Jesus than many Christians do. I listened to a debate some years ago it was hosted by a large evangelical church in America. It was a debate between a renowned atheist and a respected Christian apologist. Apologist means somebody who defends, explains the faith. And I was really looking forward to hearing this debate because I wanted to hear some sound reasoned answers to the tough questions atheists would ask. Man, was I disappointed. This debate was a verbal boxing match with the Christian throwing all the punches. This person was bombastic, loud, rude, would interrupt and cut off the atheist when giving a response, judgmental of his position, condemning him. The atheist, on the other hand, was respectful, 
would listen and wait until the other person stopped and then speak, was kind, was gentle. The only thing I got out of that debate is the atheist acted a lot more Christ-like than the Christian. Too many Christians have emphasized believing in Jesus and taken their eye off of living Jesus' way. And what is that way? It's a way of life devoted to caring for the poor. It is a life that challenged the systems of his day that favored the already advantaged, privileged, and was okay with disregarding the rights of other people. It was someone who called out personal sin, but he also called out corporate sin. It was someone who euphemistically took a bullet for people so that we might ask, why are people taking bullets? Fred Craddock once said, knowing God carries the assignment of living out the character of God. So I guess it depends on which way we lean. Do we lean toward belief or do we lean toward faith? We often use the words interchangeably and appropriately so. Both words have to do with trust. But they're different in this regard. Only one of the words can be plural. Now, we make faith plural sometimes, but when we do, we change the meaning. We say faiths, and what we mean is religion. There are many religions, there are many faiths, but when we talk about faith as trust in God, it's not plural. But we can talk about beliefs. And when we talk about beliefs, we're talking about tenets, doctrines, principles of faith that are really important. We need them. We need them because they help us understand what we're putting our trust in, understand our faith. The trouble is when we put our beliefs, or when we put our trust in our beliefs rather than in God. And at the end of the day, our faith is about trusting in God above everything else, even our beliefs. A person who's considered to be the father of modern theology is a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher, his term for God was the absolute, the divine infinite. 
And what he meant by that is God is beyond human understanding, beyond human knowing. Now, for most of us, we would say, well, what's controversial about that? I mean, that's just kind of like, duh. Yeah, of course, God is beyond what we can know. But Schleiermacher pushed the implications of that idea. He said, whenever we put our faith into words, we have limited God. Whenever we put our faith in God into beliefs, into rituals, into symbols, we have started to limit God. Now, we don't have a choice. We're human beings. We have to communicate in words. We, we appreciate the power of symbols for what they can communicate about God. Uh, rituals in worship help us to experience God. We need this as long as we understand God is still more than this. God is more than the words we use, the names that we put on our faith, the symbols we have, the rituals we share in. God is bigger. Faith takes tremendous humility to say, I believe this, but I also believe there's more to know. And I hope I'm growing. I hope I'm expanding in my understanding of who God is that there's probably more to know than I have yet to experience. But this is what I know at this point. It requires tremendous humility. And that is why doubt is not just a friend of faith. Doubt is absolutely necessary for faith because we have to have doubt come along like a wrecking ball every now and then to say, you're getting stuck in where you are. You're putting your trust in your own beliefs. And God is bigger. And at the end of the day, what faith is all about is not the words we use. It's not the symbols and the rituals. It's the way in which we allow God's will and way for this world to become our way of living. Faith is not about what gets us from this world into heaven. Faith is about what gets heaven into this world. Doubt is what challenges where we're putting our trust so that we consider that the aim of our believing is a life that looks more and more like the life of Jesus Christ so that we then come back and we say, is what I'm believing taking me toward that aim? And we need, we need doubt like, like sand in the shorts to just keep us enough uncomfortable that we keep shaking and moving and stirring and trying to, you liked that one, didn't you? I could tell some, some of you are wiggling right now a little bit on that one. But faith is meant to make us wiggle and struggle and grow. And some people don't want to struggle. They don't want to grow. They want to find a resting spot where they don't have to move the rest of their lives and hold on to an ideology that says, this fits my world. This is the way I want to stay. I understand it. But the fact is, this is God's world. And if we're going to be faithful in it, we have to let God stretch us and challenge us to move beyond our ideologies, to move beyond our politics. I know a lot of people don't like bringing politics into the church, but guess what? Politics affect the way we live. And God wants us to care about the way people live. 
And I believe a church that honors the heart of Jesus is a church which says we will hold to our beliefs, we will hold to our ideologies loosely, and we'll hold to Jesus tightly because that's the direction we want to go. And it is a church where we say if gun violence is hurting our world, Christians ought to be talking about it. We ought to be thinking about what we do about that. If hunger is an issue in our world, we ought to be dealing with it. If racism is a problem, it ought to be our problem. And we don't come to church to fight about it. We don't come to church to get ugly with each other. We come to church to say, we believe Jesus cares about this stuff. And so let's talk, let's converse, let's think about what we can do. I believe that's a church that honors God. Brian McLaren calls this stage four faith, what he calls harmony, where our principles and our learning lead us to a place where we get more and more in harmony with the life of Jesus. The verse of scripture he clings to is Paul in Galatians 5 where he says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Now, what's, what's really amazing about Paul, of all people, writing that sentence is Paul had been a Pharisee steeped in religious instruction. Beliefs mattered to Paul. Right beliefs mattered. Even becoming a Christian, Paul wrote this theological exposition called the Letter to the Romans, where it's clear that understanding our beliefs is important to Paul. This guy was brilliant. But at the end of the day, he said, but there's really only one thing that matters when it comes down to faith, is expressing itself in love. That's what matters. And that is the greatest draw of the Christian faith. When people say the only thing that matters is my faith expressing itself in love. So what do you believe? And what do you doubt? Because you need both questions. I think we're all like the disciples gathered with Jesus. Deep down, we want to know that if there is a God, we aren't forgotten. That that God cares about us. Then that God cares about what goes on in our world. And that that God's looking for us. Let me close uh, taking you back to that glacier in Washington State. I didn't end my week very well. But I did have some better moments earlier. The other couple who participated in the mountaineering school with me was from New York City. I would learn later that the guy was Jewish but had never practiced his faith. His girlfriend had never had any kind of faith influence in her life. And the only way we had gotten to know each other was by our email addresses. Now to show you how long ago this was, my church at that time didn't have a website. So my email was through this network of pastors so that my, my address was my name at pastors.com. So we started the day 
getting picked up with the guy driving the van, stopped at a coffee shop to get some coffee and head up to the mountains. We're standing in line to get coffee. The Jewish guy's in front of me, and he's really big. He's a, he's a really, really big guy, like 6'5 or more, and just bulky like a football player. He turns around and looks at me. And he said, let me ask you something. The, the, the pastors.com, does that mean like you're a Christian pastor? I said, with great confidence, yes. <laughs> he said, great, great. I'm going to be spending a week on a glacier with some pastor who's going to be quoting scripture and preaching every day. I said, actually, you are in luck. I'm on vacation, and about the last thing I want to do is preach a sermon this week. He goes, well, good. And then he turned around and ordered two espressos, slugged them both, and then this super big dark coffee, and he gets in the van. I ain't messing with him this week. <laughs> well, it was like he was okay after that little conversation. And he turned out to be really friendly, and we had a great time. Every day, we would take our lunch break, sit on this rock outcropping in the middle of the glacier, and just talk, get to know each other. What do you think, what do you think came up every day? Spiritual matters. Talk about religion. This guy would look up and go, man, look at this place. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at creation. And look at all the evil that goes on in our world. If there is a God, why does he let that happen? Well, Rev, let's hear from you. <laughs> I would share a thought, but I did not tell them what to think. I would say, what do you guys think? How do you make sense of that? Uh, we would get to know each other. Every day this happened. All right, so here was the graduation of the week. We had to summit the peak that stood above the glacier, and it requires a lot of technical climbing, so we would get to use the skills we learned because you have to be roped together and uh, a lot of time just getting all of your gear on. We had to get up at 2 in the morning to start getting ready. It took about an hour to get breakfast, get fully geared up, have the guide come and check our ropes and everything, and told me I was going to be the anchor. So I'm going last. The guide's going to go first. And we're standing on this glacier on ice, looking up. It's like 3, 3.30 in the morning under this just brilliantly clear sky. You know, there's nothing like the stars that shine when there's no artificial light. I mean, it's just, I was like in amazement. So we're ready to go. The guide says, okay, let's get started. And the Jewish guy goes, no, 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 no. We can't go yet. And the guy goes, well, what's wrong? He goes, we got to have a prayer. <laughs> the Rev's got to say a prayer. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, me? I thought like that was illegal. No, we got to have a prayer. Okay, here we stood there, the four of us, Jewish guy, wife, guide me pray and we climb why did he want to pray why did he want a prayer because I think no matter what we say somewhere inside of all of us we, we want to believe that we're not here by accident that there is a God who cares about us who cares about our world 
and is doing something about it. What do you believe? Would you just put your hands together like this as we close? And as we finish this series, And I pray, Lord, that we would think about home. Even if we didn't have a perfect home, we would think wishfully about that place where we're secure, where we're loved, where we have community. And all of the things that get in the way of that in this life, the things that make us doubt you, doubt ourselves, doubt the church and everything that goes with it, that they're like questions in our hands, Lord, we lift them up to you. And we hold on to the answers we want, but somehow, Lord, if we just know that you've heard us, that is even better than the answers. And so we keep our hands cupped, we keep them open for whatever you want to pour into them, for any kind of feeling, openness, awareness of your presence, of how much you love us and how much you want to use us to make known your will and your ways for this world. We live and worship in a tradition that we believe Jesus is that example of what life can and should look like. We can't live that way on our own. We need help. We need your help. But when we even pray those words, Lord, we're not putting anybody out. We're not saying anybody's wrong. In fact, if we really believe this, we believe this way of life welcomes everyone. So the best we know how, we give you our lives today. And we take a step toward you. And say, Lord, we want to live for you. In Christ's name.